Good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Zach Nolan. As Jeremiah gave me a little bit of an introduction earlier, my wife and I, we've been coming to Calvary for a few years now. Um, we have been blessed by this congregation. Uh, there have been so many of you guys who have been so kind to us, so inviting and encouraging, and uh, so I'm so thankful this morning that I get to come up here and to share from God's word, hopefully um, give back as we dig into God's word together. Uh, my wife and I, when we came here to Calvary, one thing we were really excited about was to be involved in the youth ministry. I didn't necessarily see myself up here teaching. Uh, I came to know Christ when I was in middle school, going into high school, and so that's where my heart is. Since my wife and I have dated, and before that, I've been volunteering in youth ministries, and it's just my heart, my desire that kids would come to know Christ, and students, I shouldn't say kids. And one thing I do want to brag on for just a minute, because it is really amazing to be a part of this church, is, is the students at this church are phenomenal. The youth ministry here, if you, if you heard the prayer requests, if you heard the way that these students prayed for and cared for one another, if you saw their engagement with, with God's word, and, and it is so encouraging and exciting to see. And it is absolutely a blessing to be able to be a part of what God is doing here and to be able to serve those students. But there are a few things that you learn when you're doing youth ministry, a few things that you have to watch for that aren't necessarily as exciting. And one of those things are student relationships. Now, it's cute, you know, kids have crushes. But as a leader, you have to be careful. Because you'll see students who come into youth group and they're hanging out with their friends. And then every week, it seems like they're slowly sitting closer and closer and closer, and soon they're attached at the hip. And what do you do then? It's cute. It's fun. It actually reminds me back of when I was dating before I got married to my wife, and we felt the same way. We were attached at the hip. We needed to spend every single day together. And I was, I was managing a coffee shop. I was working a ton, and my wife and I hadn't seen each other for two days, which, of course, when you're dating feels like a month oh, we need to do something together. We need to go out on a date or an adventure. So we decide we want to we go somewhere new. We want to go do something we hadn't done before. So we go to my now father-in-law, Brad. And we say, Brad, where can we go? What can we do? He's like, oh, you asked the right guy. Wallowa Lake. Beautiful scenic drive. You can go hike and swim, enjoy some food. It would be amazing. You guys would have a really good time. And Soph and I are excited. So I get up early, I go to their house, we eat breakfast, Soph's packed lunch and snacks and food, and we hit the road and we, we start driving to Wallowa Lake. On the way, I'm getting tons of calls from work, and my, my boss's expectation at the time if I was managing this coffee shop was that I had to take any calls that came in. It was a day when we got delivery of our goods, which means everybody's running out of everything. And they're calling me saying, Zach, what do we do? We don't have strawberry syrup. Oh, we don't have this. We don't have that. And I'm trying to make a bunch of calls. And while I'm driving, I lose cell service. I'm pretty type A. And that just bugged me. I was like, oh, no. Why? The scenic route doesn't have service? I need to be able to take my calls. And, and I, was, I tried so hard to, to not get frustrated, but I could feel inside of myself. I was so frustrated. I know they could figure it out, but that was my responsibility. And we continue to drive, and well into our drive over an hour in, we see a big orange detour sign. My GPS is saying, go this way. Detour says, don't go that way. So we follow the detour. As we drive down the road, it turns into a gravel road. 
We're driving down this gravel road over an hour, and I'm looking at my wife thinking, where does the detour, does it know where we want to go? I want to go to Willowa Lake. Maybe it wants to take us to Coeur d'Alene. There's no signage. There's absolutely nothing, and we're driving, and we're, I'm getting frustrated saying, at what point do we turn around? At what point, I mean, we've eaten lunch at the car at this point. We're just driving. It's switchbacks. There's no sign of life anywhere, and I'm thinking, where are we going? Are, are we going to run out of gas? Our day is ruined. Now, because we're stubborn, we kept driving. We found a sign, and we got to Wallawa Lake. And as we pulled up to Wallawa Lake, and we looked at the time as we had service again, we saw that we were at Wallawa Lake about the time we wanted to leave. <laughs> My wife is, is kind of the, the spontaneous one out of the two of us, and she goes, we need to jump in and swim. We just need to do something. So we try to salvage our date. We jump in the water. We swim for 15 minutes. We get in the car, and we drive home. I'll tell you guys, that was not the perfect date that we wanted to go on. I was grumpy. I was frustrated. And the truth is, all of us, we make plans that sometimes don't work how we want. How many of you have planned the perfect family getaway, and you look at that trip, and you thought, that was not what it was supposed to be? How many of us look at our lives, the season we're in, and we say, how did I get here? I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing for work. I feel like our family, there, there's, there's, there's disagreements. You know, I've got two little girls. Everybody tells me, be aware, 13 is going to be crazy. I don't know what that's going to look like. Some of you have been through that. And, and there are seasons in your life where you go, how does this all work out? This is not what it was supposed to look like. When my little girls were three, they loved me, they adored me, and now, <sighs> You know, so often in our lives we make plans, but sometimes it doesn't go how we want. So my hope today, as we look at God's word, that we can be reminded of God's strength and our weakness. That we can be reminded that when our lives are crazy, that, that God has a plan and that God's plans don't change. Today we can look at Jesus entering Jerusalem and we can look at how this has been in the works for thousands of years. This has been in the work since Adam and Eve separated themselves from God by taking and sinning and separating themselves by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet from that moment, God had a plan for his creation to be reconciled. And this moment as Jesus enters Jerusalem is a part of that plan. And there was nothing that could change what God was planning on doing for you and I. So if you're willing and able, you stand, we'll read our passage for today. In John chapter 12. Verses 12 through 26. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, there are certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast when they had come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this passage of scripture. God, we thank you so much that, God, you planned this moment for Jesus to come into Jerusalem and that we can read this today and hopefully, God, we can be encouraged that you'd speak to us through your word. God, that we would be challenged, that we would grow closer to you and God, we just pray that today as, as we study your word, you'd be with us, God. God, we love you. We thank you so much that Jesus was faithful to do what you called him to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Verse 12. The next day, a great multitude had come to the feast. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches, they took of palm trees, took branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now what's happening is there are Jews that are coming from all over, and they're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And we know that there's a multitude of these Jews who are coming together, and they are hearing what Jesus has done. And they're looking, and they're thinking, this is Jesus the Messiah. This is the Messiah who we've been waiting for. However, we also know that in the crowd that they're religious leaders who look at Jesus and they say, this is not the Messiah. It's fair to say, it's not a far stretch to, to say that there were, there were people in both camps in the crowd. There were people that as Jesus came into Jerusalem, they looked and they said, Jesus, Messiah, he's just a man. There were people who looked at Jesus and maybe they weren't quite convinced he was the Messiah. You know, there, there are times in scriptures we see that, are, is, he a, is he a prophet? Is he like John? Is he like Elijah? Like, who is he? There's something special about him for sure. God is with him. He's healing for sure. But is he actually the Messiah? Of course, there are people who are in the crowd who believe confidently. They say he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus doesn't just perform miracles. He looks at those in their sin and he says, your sin is forgiven. Hello? Can anybody else do that except the Messiah? But I want to address something before we get too far into this message today, because the truth is, Easter season is a time for a lot of people to come to church that haven't been for a while. People who decide that I'm going to come back, I want to reconnect, I want to make this right, I want to get my family in church. But the truth is, there are people who come to church that are in a crowd. You would think a church, of course, everybody in the crowd with Jesus, they all think he's the Messiah. You think everybody in this church would think, oh, of course, Jesus is Messiah. But the truth is, it's very likely there are people in this room here who say, I don't know. I think he's a good teacher, but is he my savior? Every Christian in this room, there's a season in our life, some of us when we were younger, some of us when we were older, when we weren't sure either. 
But after studying God's word, after digging into his word and asking God to, to show us, to show us and to reveal to us who his son is, as we come to church, as we get connected to other believers, as we eat dinner at each other's homes, as we're encouraged, as, as we study God's word, we come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. And so if you're here today and you haven't made that decision, I just want to challenge you today. Do not just come to church and do what the crowd does because it's what people in church do. We call Jesus Messiah, so I guess I'll do that too. If you're here and you feel like, I'm not sure if Jesus is Messiah, then don't just come to church and sit. Find yourself a group of believers who will love you and who will share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with you. There are people in this room, I can guarantee, who would love to take you or your family and they would love to have you over for dinner and to share the good news of Jesus with you. There are pastors in this church who would be happy to answer your questions. The fact that Jesus is your Messiah is an amazing thing. I can tell you confidently, I believe that. And if you're not sure, don't just sit and wonder. Don't just go along with the crowd. Keep wrestling. Seek God. Don't just make this something that you do a few times a year. Now, verse 13, they took palm branches. They went out to meet him, being Jesus. They cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, those of us who believe Jesus is Messiah, we can picture this, right? There are all of these Jews who are looking and they're saying, Jesus is Messiah. They're going, they're laying palm branches. They're praising him, King of Israel, Hosanna. They're saying, save now. Save now, Jesus. And we think as Christians, that's where we would be. If we had the opportunity to see Jesus riding in on donkey, we would be celebrating Jesus because we know the whole picture. We know that Jesus is coming in and that, that the, what he's about to do is to save us from our sins, to deliver us, to, to, to deliver us this spiritual victory over sin and death. Something we have to understand is the perspective of the Jews here. They didn't exactly view Jesus as their spiritual savior. They were actually, a lot of them, they're looking to Jesus as a political savior. They're looking at Jesus to save them, but they're looking for Jesus to deliver them from the Roman Empire. When they say save now, they literally mean, Jesus, save us now from being under Roman rule. You're the Messiah, right? They're not picturing a few days from now he's going to die. He raises people from the dead. Jesus doesn't die. If he is the Messiah, the Son of God, He's going to conquer nations. He's going he's to put us up and we're going to rule with him. They view him as this political savior. You picture the Passover, this festival that they're celebrating. You can, you can imagine they may be even connected. Exodus, this time when God's nation was delivered from slavery, from captivity, from Pharaoh, and, and God used Moses to deliver his nation. Won't Jesus do the same thing? Won't Jesus deliver his people in the same way? Maybe God's going to split a sea and it's going to wipe out the Roman armies and, and they, can just, they can just picture how God is going to deliver them. But what's interesting is in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, I, I want to read for you what they're celebrating here. One, 1 through 7. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If a household is too small for the lamb, 
Let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make account for your lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or of the goats. Now you shall keep it on the 14th day of the same month. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Oh, it's amazing about what's happening in Jerusalem right now. As Jesus is entering Jerusalem, there are also thousands of lambs coming into Jerusalem. There's a Jewish historian named Josephus who said one year there was actually, there was actually a census of the Passover festival, and it was estimated there have been 256,000 lambs being brought into Jerusalem. Thousands of lambs, and all of these lambs are going to stick with these families for three days, and they're going to be inspected by the religious leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're, they're going to inspect the priests, they're going to inspect these lambs, and they're going to check them for spot or for blemish. And just like in Exodus, what would happen is they sacrifice the lamb to protect them from the, this, this plague where the firstborn would be killed. They put it on their doorway in the same way they're going to remember that by these perfect lambs, innocent lambs, being sacrificed. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem, perfect and blameless, is examined by the religious leaders. They try to find faults in Jesus. They try to find faults in, in what he says. They're challenging him, just hoping they can catch him in saying something that would, that would allow them to kill him. They want to kill him, a guilty man, but they can't. And so instead, at night, led by Judas, they go and they hold a trial and they have Jesus, an innocent man, the Lamb of God killed for you and I. It's amazing when you look at the whole picture, but sometimes, in this case, a lot of the Jews in this situation, they're, they're not seeing the whole picture. They don't see exactly what God is doing. And that's why they shouted at Jesus. The same crowd that glorified him here, they shouted at Jesus, crucify him because they didn't understand his whole purpose when he came into Jerusalem. Another reason we know they viewed Jesus as a political leader, they were waving palm branches. And to you and I, that just sounds like it was maybe a hot day, but they were, they were laying palm branches, they were waving them. This was actually something that started about 200 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem. In the time of the Maccabees, essentially there was this super terrible king, Antiochus Epiphanes, if I said that right. Now, he was awful. When they conquered Jerusalem, uh, one of the first things that he did is he went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the temple, and he went and he killed a pig, which would have been considered unclean, and he made the priests drink the blood. This would have been a, an abomination. This would have been disgusting and, and so uh, unrighteous, and, and yet he made the priests do this rabbinical, um, let's see, rabbinical... Um, Sorry, guys, I got notes here. Rabbinical sources, so rabbis who referred to him, they called him Harasha, the wicked. Harasha, the wicked, that's how they referred to this king. However, after the Israelites defeated this king, after the Maccabean revolt, and they gained freedom from this king as an act of celebration, they cut down palm branches. They waved them like they did for Jesus. In fact, the palm branch on the back of, of the Israelite coin would have been a palm branch. 
much like our coins used to have, the American Eagle, a sign of nationalism, a sign of, of our nation in the same way palm branches as they're inviting Jesus in, as they're saying, King of Israel. As they call us out, what they're looking is for a king to deliver them right now in their flesh. They want to experience God delivering them. And I want to talk about this for a minute because to you and I, sometimes as Christians, God does work in our lives and we feel like we see the whole picture. We're sure we see the whole picture. It, we're so convinced that what we're seeing right now, what God is revealing to me is what I need to do. We go two feet in. Okay, God, you gave me, you gave me kind of a picture of what you want, so I'm going to take it from here. I've got it from here, God. I'm sure that this is what you're doing. You're giving us a political king. Praise God. How amazing. King of Israel. We've got it from here, God. How often have you and I, we've, we've trusted in God's plan, we're convinced that God has called us to do something and then it doesn't quite look how we expect? How many of us feel like we were born to be a parent, a mother or a father? I know my wife, since the moment we dated, she goes, I know I, I am supposed to be a mom. I, that is just in me. I want to be a mama. I want to have little girls. But we also knew that it was going to be hard for us to have kids because of my wife's dysautonomia. And we had to do fertility drugs. And the first time that we did fertility drugs, essentially they told us you're going to go through three or four rounds of hormone treatment. If you can't do that, the next step is to start to do in vitro, to do some very, very expensive procedures. Essentially, my wife and I both agreed that if we couldn't have kids just through hormone treatment, that we would look at other avenues. We would look at adoption. We look at fostering. But we really, really so badly wanted to be able to have biological kids. It's hard in the midst of a season where, where my wife and I were so sure we're called to be parents, but it's not going exactly how we want. How many of you have been called by God? You feel so heavily on your heart that you need to apologize to somebody who you've sinned against. You came to know Christ. You accepted him. You look at people you've hurt in your life, and, you, and you're like, I know for a fact God is calling me to redeem, to repair, to reconcile this relationship. You go to the person that you've hurt. You tell them, I'm sorry, I've came to know Christ. I've looked at his word. I know that I, I have done wrong. And I want to make it right. Maybe it's with your own kids. Maybe it's with somebody in your family. And you go and you try and repair that relationship. And they look at you and they say, I don't care. I don't care if you found Jesus. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you think that God has called you to do this. I don't forgive you. I don't accept your apology. And you walk away and you say, God, I thought that I was supposed to repair this relationship. This isn't, I was sure that's what you wanted me to do. In my life, I was convinced, I went to Bible college, I was convinced that God called me to be a youth pastor. I was convinced that that is what God wanted me to do. And if any church would have offered me a job, with the exception of the last two years of my life, I would have jumped on it. Yes, please, let me serve your kids. Let me share Jesus with them. That is what I want to do. Nobody offered me a job. Are you kidding me? Somebody, I will just part-time, anything. I volunteered in youth ministry for 10 years. God, I know that you called me to share the gospel with these kids, so why is it that you're not calling me to be a pastor, giving me that position and that role? You know what's amazing? God has been showing me something over the last few years, and, and I am so thankful that I have a full-time job selling ice machines. Because I work nine to five. Every morning I eat breakfast with my girls. Every night 
I get to sing my girl's song, I get to put them to bed, and then on Thursday nights, I get to go out after dinner, and I get to share the good news of Jesus with kids. I get to help in worship. I get to come up here and preach, and I can tell you guys that the only reason that I am here is because I want to share the gospel of Jesus with you guys. I'm not here because this is the the most enjoyable or easy thing to do. My wife knows that I've been stressed this week trying to prepare for Palm Sunday, right? This is like all of you know these passages. You've heard this before, and I'm supposed to come up and teach. I'm terrified. It's stressful. I want to do this right, but I'm here because I want to share Jesus. I have nothing to gain. The only reason The only reason I can say that is because because God has blessed me and allowed me to to not have to be a full-time pastor. But I was so convinced for a season that's what he wanted, but I was missing the point. I can still serve God. I can still do work in his kingdom, and I don't have to be a pastor. In fact, what the pastors here do, I'm blown away. Being a pastor is a a hard thing. I am so impressed with the men who do this full-time. Passage continues in verse 14. It says, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things were written about him, that they had done these things to him. First thing to note here again is that Jesus isn't being cryptic. When it comes to Jesus' plan, as he's coming into Jerusalem, he's sitting on a donkey. This is a sign of coming in peace. It would be something that a, a priest would come into a city riding on a donkey to show that they were coming, not to conquer, not for a political victory or to show their power. No, a king would come in on a horse. He would come in to show his authority, to show his power, to show what he's going to do. But instead, Jesus comes in on a donkey. What's amazing is his disciples didn't even realize why Jesus coming in on a donkey, it's like, well, this is what we could find. What they realized later is this is actually a prophecy written almost 500 years before this in Zechariah 9.9. A prophet writes about this exact moment. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. God spoke to a prophet 500 years before this moment and predicted that Jesus would come in on a donkey and his disciples, who would know the Old Testament very well, immediately they didn't, they didn't realize what was happening. They're just going, oh, we got a donkey. But Jesus knew exactly what was happening. Scholars say there are over 332 prophecies in the Old Testament that point specifically to Jesus and his life. Over 332 prophecies that point to Jesus and that he fulfilled them in his life. The thought of even fulfilling a few of these is unimaginable. There's a Christian apologist by the name of Charlie Campbell. He says, applying the science of probability for one person to fill even eight of these 332 prophecies would be one in one quadrillion. Now, I'm not a mathematician. I don't know what the science of probability is. I don't exactly know how the math on that works, but what I do know is Isaiah 7, 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we will call him Emmanuel. 
Now, in my opinion, I don't even know if one quadrillion covers it because as far as I know, biologically, Mary is the only gal to ever conceive as a virgin. That's pretty amazing that there would be a prophecy that Jesus would come from a virgin and the only time in history we see Mary. But maybe for you, you say, well, I don't know about that. Was she actually a virgin? You know. Okay, you have doubts. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus, being born in Bethlehem, uh, his parents were told by an angel that, the Herod, that King Herod was going to, in Matthew 2, that King Herod was going to have all of the kids killed, all of the male boys killed under two years old. And so an angel comes to Mary and says, you need to flee to Egypt. And so we see a fulfillment in Hosea 11.1, 1, because King Herod is persecuting, is trying to kill all of the kids because he hears rumor the Messiah may have been born. Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Euphratah, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient times. So again, a prophecy saying that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem in Judea. I want you to consider Isaiah 53. This passage was written 750 years before Christ walked the earth. I want you to consider what this passage says and tell me, how was this written before Jesus came, before Jesus sacrificed, before he gave his life for you and I? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we were healed. We were all like sheep who had gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has said to him, the, iniqui the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before its shearer is silent, but he did not open his mouth. This passage continues. And I want to encourage you guys, if you haven't read this, I was encouraged this week to read this passage. Read Isaiah 53. And tell me there is not a stark contrast between that and what Jesus is about to do on the cross for you and I. You cannot tell me that, that God's timing is not unbelievable. When you look at the fact they are celebrating the Passover, there are thousands of lambs and then there is the Lamb of God. You can't tell me how, how all of these prophets writing hundreds of years before Jesus walked are telling all of these things about what he would be and what he would do and where he would go even when he was a baby, when he wasn't in control and he's fulfilling prophecy and prophecy and prophecy and prophecy. And you look and you say, what? How? When God says something, we can be confident. Because when he says something, it is set in stone and there is nothing that will change God's will and there's nothing that will change God's plan. 
as Christians, that should bring us hope. That should bring us joy, not because it means that, that there's nowhere in Scripture that says life's going to be perfect if we accept Christ. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that if we accept Christ, we'll be wealthy. Immediately, all of our relationships will be fixed. All of a sudden, life is going to get really easy. That's not what God's Word says. You know what God says to you and I, what we can stand in, what we can be confident in? Romans 10, verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? The Word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the Word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart one believes unto righteousness, and with one's mouth is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is over all, is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What God promises you and I, what he's given us through his son Jesus is that we get to look forward to an eternity with Jesus. We get to look forward to an eternity with God, our creator. I don't know why God would do that. When, when God created mankind and we immediately chose to sin against him, why was his plan that he would redeem us and he would save us and he would pay for our sins? I don't know, but I know that we can all be thankful that he did. And we can all be thankful that it's not about what we do, it is about what his son has done for us, the sacrifice that he made. Be so thankful that when God says something, it's set in stone. He doesn't take back his word. His plans aren't detoured. They aren't changed. John 12, continuing in verse 17 says, therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb raised him from the dead. They bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. What we see here is that, what we're seeing here is that the Jews are going and they're praising Jesus and they're celebrating him and the Pharisees aren't happy about it. In Luke 19, I like this because Luke is getting a firsthand account and somebody would have heard the Pharisees yelling out to Jesus. So the crowds are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And it says some of the Pharisees called out to him being Jesus saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples, teacher. He answered them. He said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. What Jesus is saying here is that people see that God is at work and there's nothing I can do to stop what is happening right here. What's amazing is in the midst of God working, in this moment, the Pharisees, they're so frustrated with Jesus, they're yelling at him, rebuke your disciples. A conversation amongst themselves maybe, look, the world has gone after him, this so-called Messiah. You would think that they would say, ah, he raised Lazarus, he's performed miracles, look at the timing, they should know the scriptures, they should know Zechariah 9.9, and they should say, maybe this is actually the Messiah, but no, they're stuck in their own head, in their own frustration, in their own hate for Jesus. As Christians, you and I, we need to know something. 
We need to know that if we accept Jesus and we pursue him, that if the Messiah can be hated, you and I, if we profess and proclaim his message, you and I will also find resistance in our life. I mean, John 15 says it, doesn't it? 18 through 20, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now I know a few decades ago, when it came to living in America, there was kind of this moral expectation. A lot of people went to church. There were, there were things that were in our culture that were very much defined by our belief as Christians. However, that's changing. I know when I was in high school, it wasn't really expected anymore that you would go to church, that you would have a relationship with Christ, that you would know the Bible. It's not taught in schools anymore. But there was still this kind of piece of if you believe in God, do your own thing. That's all right. Do your own thing. Whatever makes you happy, that's okay. If you want to love God, you, you can even share Jesus a little bit, you know, that's all right. But what I've seen over the last 10 years and what I look at as my girls are growing up is our world is changing. Now to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. Now our world says that there's no absolute truth. The only truth is what you define, what you feel is best. Whatever you feel is good, whatever leads you to, to, to your own personal satisfaction and fulfillment, that's what you need to go after. It's amazing to me how the same lies Satan whispered to Adam and Eve when they took a bite from the apple. Surely it won't kill you. And Adam and Eve are convinced, I think I might know better than God. I think I might know better than God. And now we have a world that says, you do know better. The Bible, it's old. Forget about it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have implications for our lives. Just forget about it. Do whatever makes you feel good. And as you and I, as we pursue God, we're going to stand out. We're going to look different. John 3.19. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. That men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light, least his deeds should be exposed. But he who does, the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. As Christians, as we share the gospel, as we pursue Jesus, the truth is we're going to find resistance, and I think more and more in our culture we're going to see it. And as the world continues to look away from Christ, as the world continues to look a little bit darker, you and I, we're going to look a little lighter in the world, which is an amazing testimony. Your life is going to continue to look more and more different than those around you. That also makes you and I as Christians a target. If you're in the middle of dark, the dark woods and you've got a light, you're the only thing that anybody can look at. You're the only thing that anybody can talk about. Jesus, as he's entering Jerusalem, the light of the world, as he comes in, nobody can talk about anything else but Jesus because look, it's God working. And in the same way as Christians, we're going to stand out. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy. Verse 20 continues. It says, now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. 
when they came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew told Philip, or Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls onto the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So we see here is that Jesus, obviously, he's making an impact, isn't he? He's got Greeks who are coming up during this festival, non-Jews, people who'd be celebrating this festival. They're coming up to Jesus, and they're trying to get his attention. They're going to Philip, who's going to Andrew, and they're trying to get Jesus' attention. And I don't know, it doesn't say why they're going to Jesus. Maybe they see something in Jesus, and they're, they're, they've heard about his miracles, and they're going to ask him, God, can, Jesus, can, can you... Can you Heal me. Can you do a work? Maybe they're coming to Jesus and they recognize that there are all these lambs being sacrificed and they're going, hey, I'm not a Jew, but like, do you want to sacrifice this? Like, I got like, I got a cat. I got a dog. I got, could you sacrifice something? How does this work? I, I don't know, but, but Jesus, can I get your attention? And what's interesting is Jesus's response. He says, the hour of co- has come that the son of man shall be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus is obviously predicting what's about to happen. He's predicting that he is going to die. He's going to make the sacrifice that they need. Whatever they're asking for is not nearly as important as what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And so today I want to ask you, as we wrap up, In this passage over and over, we see that God's word is set in stone. We see that we have reason to be confident in God. We see that we we can put our faith in God. And then Jesus says that you and I, if we're going to lose our lives, we'll gain it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So I want to ask you, the same question a youth pastor asked me when I was in late middle school and in high school. He was discipling me. He shared with me the gospel and he said, Zach, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to be willing to give your complete life to him. Every, every part of your life, you give it to him and you trust him. And I remember vividly him saying that to me because it really kind of bothered me. Because I was still really young I had not kissed a girl, and all I'm hearing is this pastor saying, you give your whole life to Jesus. If he says you can't ever kiss a girl, you don't get to. If he says that you can't go off to college and be successful and make lots of money, you don't get to. If God calls you to be a missionary, you go. And you've all heard stories about the missionaries. They do some crazy things. If God told me that someday I would go to Emmett, Idaho, and I would preach in front of you guys, middle school me would say, no way, no, not going to happen. But I was walking home. As I was walking home and I was considering what my pastor said, I already knew the decision that I was going to make. I knew that I was going to accept Jesus to to be in complete control of my life, and I didn't know what that looked like. 
I was worried because there were things that maybe I wanted that God didn't want. I was worried that maybe God's life for me wouldn't be exciting, it wouldn't be cool, it wouldn't be fulfilling. I can tell you guys today that I was completely wrong to have even worried for a moment. God has been so good to me. I don't know how I ended up in Emmett, Idaho, being able to serve the students that are at this church, to be able to be up here and to share from God's word, but I am so thankful for the work that he has done in my life. I am so thankful that I chose to give my life to God. And you know, it's a continued decision. As a father, I'm learning a lot of parts in my life that I I still have to give over to God. Selfishness of my own time, my own desires. I still have to continue to turn to God and to say, God, I'm going to give you every part of my heart. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to trust your plan for my life. I want to ask you today, if maybe for the first time, you'd be willing to consider to make that commitment. But for those of us who are here, who've been in kind of a funky season, maybe it's a time to look into your heart and say, God, what are the things that I'm still holding on to? What are the things that I've taken back, that I've tried to take control of in my life? I want to give that back to you. I want to give my complete trust and life to you because God, your plan is perfect. God, I trust you completely. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. God, that it can be an encouragement to us. God, we're so thankful that that as we look at your word, that we can have confidence, God, that you don't just say things flippantly, God, but you mean them. And God, we're so thankful for your son, Jesus. God, we're so thankful that he was faithful to do what you called him to do. And God, I just pray that as we're here today, that we can see all that you've done and that we would be willing to trust in you. Trust in you with our lives, God, trusting you with everything that we have. And God, please just, just allow us to let go of the things we're holding on to. God, please work in our lives. Give us confidence in the seasons that we don't quite get the whole picture. God, allow us to have understanding when things don't exactly go how we want. And God, allow us to celebrate you when you are so good to us beyond what we deserve. God, we love you and we thank you so much for who you are. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.